This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. Today, Christo Visa on the Steinhoff crash. Billionaire retailing entrepreneur Christo Visa lost more than anyone else in the Steinhoff collapse. As the biggest single shareholder, there's the matter of almost 60 billion rand that disappeared from his asset base overnight. As precious for those who operate in his rarefied atmosphere is the damage to his reputation. On top of that, a pile of Visa's loans secured by Steinhoff shares cost Wall Street's biggest banks billions more. And overnight they transformed him from high society's A to, well, no list. He resigned as chairman of Steinhoff's board shortly after the fraud surfaced in early December. Now he wants his money back. Well, the the obvious first question is that uh, you are suing Steinhoff for $59 billion. Uh, yeah. From what I've read, it's all to do with misrepresentation. That's correct, yes. You did. You are an advocate. You did study the law. So this is something that's pretty close to, to, to your heart when you see this from a legal perspective. Absolutely. But, you know, you will appreciate uh, an instance like this. I mean, I was obviously obliged to take the very best advice that I could get. It wasn't a, a decision taken lightly, as you can imagine. So <laughs> I'm certainly not relying on my own knowledge of the law. Mm. I, I'm very well advised. The forensic auditors uh, came out with some uh, yeah. uh, some interesting statements, and essentially from, from what you read uh, from the AGM, that there's over many years there's been fictitious invoices and inflated asset values. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, those, yeah, those comments have been made. You're quite right. It is in the public domain. But surely that's criminal. Well, uh, you know, the, I don't want to prejudge that, uh, Alec, but uh, the forensic auditors will hopefully, uh, before the end of the year, release their report, and that will indicate very clearly what exactly had been happening, where it happened, who the perpetrators were, and really what the consequences were. What the forensic auditors said leaves very little to the imagination, and... One would, yeah. as an outsider, you'd wonder why charges, why criminal charges have not been laid or that the, the law enforcement uh, authorities haven't been brought in yet. Yeah. As you know, uh, Alec, I'm not uh, involved with Steiner for, since December, so it's really not possible for me to give an answer to that question. To say Visa's one-time protege enjoyed absolute trust is an understatement. After injecting his massive Pepcor Group into Eurster's operation, Visa doubled up again by putting up his huge stake in the enlarged entity as security to buy still more shares in Steinhoff, that to help fuel an aggressive international acquisition campaign. When the mattress firm deal was done after the pound band deal, effectively you you doubled up your investment by borrowing and, and putting, absolutely. Yeah, putting your shares up. Absolutely. What, yes, absolutely. What gave you that confidence? Well, on everything that the business was ostensibly producing at that stage. And the strategic plan with the acquisition of Matters Firm. You know, Matters Firm owns 25% of the Matters market in the United States. 
you know, as a retailer, that appeared like a huge opportunity. And it's a business that they, in Steinhoff, had been looking at over a very long period of time. It, it made, at the time, on the figures presented, the strategies presented, made perfect sense. But it was also the biggest short position on the New York Stock Exchange at the time. And, uh, and the price that was paid was, was a substantial premium on what the shares were trading at. Did you, did you go into that at the, depth? At the ruling, mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely, at the ruling price. But if you look over the previous year where the, you know, the share was, uh, you know, that, as you know, it often happens. I mean, I, I pointed out to people the other day uh, that uh, you, you take a business, a very good business like Woolworths, in the last 18 months or so, just check what happened to their share price. These things happen in businesses. I mean, I've gone through periods where Pepcor traded at a 29 PE and then it traded at a 6 PE. So that of itself was not a reason for alarm. And you know, Alec, at the end of the day, you're asking me, uh, you know, didn't this raise a red flag or that, that raise a red flag? Just read all the analysts' reports on Steinhoff until the day it crashed. People studying it, analyzing it. Look at the people who still, I think in August or so, USA issued a bond, and he told me that I never check those figures, but a 10-year bond, and he had applications for 3.2 billion euros. That was in September or thereabouts, two months before the whole debacle. So what was there to put one on one's guard? I mean, there was the, those articles and the raid by the prosecutor. We appointed a very, very highly respected legal accounting firm in Germany that employs hundreds of professionals. They went into everything and reported back that everything was in order in the accounts and all the things that were alleged wrongdoings. All cleared everything in order. But the whole market was aware of that. How did they miss it? They knew of the raid. Sorry? How did they miss it? How did, the, how did that firm miss it? Well, that presumably, Alec, Presumably, that will come out in the forensic uh, investigators' report now. How did people miss it? I mean, how did a firm like Deloitte, uh, I mean, that's also public knowledge, so I can say it to you. The, the question to Deloitte would be, but you signed off on those things in 2016. And, and what so, about... I mean, that mystery can only be clarified when, when the forensic investigators produce their report. Mm. And Dr. Andreas Seifert, did you ever have a chance to meet with him? Because he seems to have been very no, central I, to all of I, this. No, I never met. I know I never met him because you know that whole dispute started long before I got involved with Steinhoff. Uh, so we just had you know regular reports and. Uh, the, the reports back to the board were, you know, that Seifert is not faring well in the litigation process. 
And uh, secondly, that, you know, there will be attempts to settle the matter. Thirdly, that we could verify was that there was a provision in the accounts for what was considered to be the worst outcome of such a settlement. Now, as you've probably seen, they did now settle it uh, in the last couple of days. They settled with Seifert on the one issue, and I think that was the major issue. I never had an opportunity to meet him. Uh, after the, the debacle, the, there was an approach by him to ask, you know, that maybe the two of us should meet, but I left Steinhoff shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. So I never met him. We now know that Dr. Andreas Seifert was the man who exposed the Eurster fraud. The two of them, Seifert and Eurster, were once tight, very tight. But after they fell out, Seifert made it his mission to get back what he claims to have been cheated of. He succeeded last week. Visa is hoping to do exactly the same, in his case to recover 59 billion rands worth of assets that were injected into Steinhoff based on the company's, what he calls, misrepresentation. More specifically, Visa says he was told lies and given false information about Steinhoff's true financial position by its chief executive, Marcus Eurster, a man who he trusted implicitly. Maybe just to go back a little bit to your relationship with Marcus Eurster, he, he often spoke about how he met you when he was an articled clerk. When, when he came in to do audits, did you know him then? Did you build a relationship then? Yeah, well, yeah, no, we didn't have any sort of relationship. He was a young articled clerk with a firm of accountants who were, you know, then looking after some of my affairs. So I met him. He was a youngster. He's 20 years younger than I am. He looked like a nice, bright young guy. But I, you know, saw him for a year or two uh, in that capacity. He then left for a then Transvaal. And for about 15 years, I had no contact with him, but I was aware of what he was doing in Steinhoff, building the group. So when did you get uh, closer, or when did you get to know each other better? Well, when I did the Landvac deal, I sold Landvac to a consortium of which he was part in 2011. And he then approached me to swap my PSG stake into Steinhoff, which made me a fairly large shareholder in Steinhoff in 2011. Uh, so I suppose that's when you can say that the relationship started. And as a as a significant shareholder, presumably you got an opportunity to have a look at the books at that point, and there was clearly nothing untoward. Well, no. What happened uh, two years after the deal, as a significant shareholder, I was invited onto the board. The board at that stage consisted of some of the top names in South Africa, top business people, people most of whom I knew. And uh, so I was on the board for about two years, watching how the company operates, looking at their systems, how professional they were, what their plans were. And at that stage, I had already decided, and it was widely reported, that I wanted to consolidate my business interests. Uh, And 
I considered that Steinhardt was the perfect vehicle to do so. And that's when we started in 2014-15. I started talking to Eurster about Steinhardt acquiring the Pepcorp business from me and the other shareholders, and that I would then invest the proceeds of that acquisition into Steinhardt. Yeah, that happened towards the end of 2015. During all of this time, it now transpires that there was already quite a lot of shenanigans going on in the accounts in Europe, in Steinhoff Europe. Was it at any stage strange to you that Steinhoff Europe was being audited by a very small German firm? No, you know, that had been going on for years because, as I understood it, those were the original auditors of Bruno Steinhoff's business. So they are people who were familiar uh, with the group from its inception, much like we had in Pepcor. You know, Pepcor started off with a firm of auditors in Uppington, when it was really uh, a very, very small business, and it stayed with the same firm for over 50 years. The firm, of course, had changed its name. So there was a similar situation there. But, you know, it didn't really concern me because it had gone on for, for a very long time. And, of course, these component auditors were also being looked at by the statutory auditors who initially were Deloitte in South Africa. But from the listing in Frankfurt, it became Deloitte Netherlands. So there was no reason to, uh, to have any concern about that, none whatsoever. You must have spent hours mulling these things over in your head, but w- during all these years, was there anything that, that with hindsight now that Marcus Joester did or said that would have, with hindsight, given you a, a, a little pause for concern that he might have been busy with the stuff that we now he wa- we now know he was busy with but you know Alec that's the amazing thing you know my friend Whitey Besson amongst others mm-hmm. saying well you know he doesn't like that people running that style that sort of culture in a way but he was referring to things like you know going to world cups and stuff like that because that's not things that we do. Uh, so, yes, there was criticism of style, but in the few years that I worked with Joester, never once the slightest indication of anything shady, trying to cut a corner. What I saw was a very hardworking guy with a very strong team. They knew, you know, the, the regulations, uh, the, the exchange control setups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Very, very impressive. Very professional. And you know, I've said this to people a thousand times. Steinhoff was the only company that I'm aware of where the three members of the audit committee of the supervisory board, all three, doctorates in accounting. My question always is, why should I? I'm a, a failed lawyer. Why should I or any of the other esteemed non-executive board members, why should we have any concern about a structure that had been working for so many years? 
If I look back, somebody asked me the question earlier this morning, what lessons did I learn? And I said, you know, that's part of the frustration. I don't really know. Even looking back, what should I have done differently? Mm. Uh, because, but what I do realize now is, you know, I grew up in my businesses over a period of 50 years. I knew those businesses. You could sense when things were not going well. I mean, I have this little old story that when I leave my office at seven at night, and the car park is empty, then I know the business will not be doing well. You know, you, 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 you have a feeling for what happens. Mm. And what happened with me and Steinoff, obviously, I did not know the businesses that they were in well enough to sense that, you know, things are perhaps not going as well as it would appear from numbers. I don't know whether that makes sense to you. In retrospect, I think, yeah. That That is something. But then on the other hand, Alec, you know my history. I mean, I've gone into many businesses where I went in with very, you know, but obviously on a much, much smaller scale. But without having that same depth of knowledge of those businesses that I had in my own businesses with which I grew up. All about trust. Well, at the end of the day, you know, uh, I mean, this is probably a cliche, but it certainly was part of my, remains part of my DNA and philosophy is, you know, the old adage that it is dangerous or risky to trust, but it's far more riskier in a business to distrust. It's, you, how, how do you build businesses that employ hundreds of thousands of people unless you have that absolute trust, the way I had it in Whitey Pusson, Peter Erasmus, and all their other co- and all the other businesses that I'm involved in. Absolute and total trust. Sure, we all make judgment errors, but it's got nothing to do with integrity. Why did Whitey and, and Peter, certainly from, from the people I've spoken to, why did they have a have an aversion towards Marcus Yoster. Did they maybe see things there? You they, they, well, I, I don't know. They certainly never uh, told me that they are aware of of things that could be shady. But they, like me, didn't know those businesses. They didn't like what I refer to as the style. But you know, even in my own group, Alex. Some of my colleagues, the one didn't like the other one's style. They, they ran their businesses differently. So, you know, from my side, it was simply one of those almost personality clashes that, uh, you know, people that just did not uh, sit around the same fire, as it were. If, if you were to... Whitey expressed... Sorry, Whitey expressed these views very openly, I mean... Uh, to his credit, but never a suggestion of a lack of integrity. Never. He just didn't like those businesses because, you know, Shoprite and Pepcor, if I may say so, in all humility, are fantastic businesses. Cash generative, defensive businesses, etc. So, yeah, 
they whitey you know we have a furniture business in in uh, shoprite uh, but we acquired it in a sense by accident and so uh, i ascribed whitey's resistance inter alia to the fact that he didn't like those businesses which is is perfectly entitled to that view visa refers there to whitey basson uh, he's an entrepreneur who built africa's biggest retailing group shoprite Basson got into the furniture business through ShopRite's acquisition of the failed retailer OK Bazaars, which owned a large furniture retailing operation. He got to know more about furniture and clearly would have had an insight into the way that Steinhoff operated. But even though Basson and others like Remgro chairman Johann Rupert expressed publicly and often their concerns about Steinhoff and Joester, its biggest shareholder paid no heed something Visa obviously regrets. To this day, since the 6th of December, I've not heard a word from him. Other friends have come to me and shown me, you know, messages that he sent them saying you know, how terrible he feels uh, about my situation, etc., etc. But I never heard a word. That's a fact. I mean, I have said it to people because they ask me, have you seen him? Have you heard from him? From the 6th of December, not a word. And his lawyers? No, I haven't heard from his lawyers. The thing here that confuses why, why would he? so much is that he, he yeah. caused a lot of trouble. He then sent out a, a, a WhatsApp message or an SMS. Sort of a mea culpa, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then, then he disappeared. Then he just... Totally disappeared. But but these lawyers, I've not been, these lawyers have never been in touch with me. Mm. I've had absolutely no contact, not a word from him, not with anybody connected to him, not a single word. People, friends have told me they've seen him in Stellenbosch, in restaurants, uh, and in Albanus and so forth, but, I mean, I've not seen nor heard from him. Some insiders say the disgraced Steinhoff chief executive, Marcus Joester, still tells anyone around Stellenbosch prepared to listen. He's done nothing wrong. He's baffled at what all this fuss is about. That's a classic sociopathic tendency. Sociopaths are people with personality disorders, which gives them the inability to accept blame or to accept the reality of the damage that their actions have wrought. You know, Euster gave no indication whatsoever that he was, you know, uh, uh, concerned about anything blowing up. I mean, far from it. I mean, the sort of things that were on our table th that we were discussing and with the merchant banks, we were looking at forming a huge uh, property company, putting the various properties into a listing with one of the major international banks. I mean, all these plans... I look at all these papers, still towards the end of November we were discussing, which would pump an enormous amount of liquidity into Steinhoff based on the figures as they were then, some 4 billion euro. I mean, that everything was going according to the long-term strategy. So there was no concern. I mean, at Star, as you know, on listing, because that's mainly the old pet businesses, was a huge success oversubscribed and so no sign of any problem. 
just from from your own perspective, you you have a, a a reputation that's been built up over half a century, and you've also because of your doubling up bet and the and the non recourse loan, you've also cost some big banks a lot of money, and they've got long memories. Yes, uh, from a personal perspective, it's one only really Terrible. has your reputation. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a terrible thing because I've dealt with many of these people. For decades, Alec, and uh, uh, obviously it is it's a terrible thing to to uh, to experience. All I can tell you that you can imagine what my situation personally was when overnight fifty million or over fifty because I've got it related to the share price over fifty billion rand of my assets go up in smoke. And if I have to tell you, and I mean, you know, it's there for the record, the support that I have had from the banks that I've dealt with was just amazing, amazing. So I would like to believe that my relationship with them has not been damaged, that they understand it. But I mean, it doesn't make me not feel terrible about what happened. Mm. But if the only argument I can put on the table is I lost more than anybody else. Mm. But if, if it wasn't a non-recourse loan, then that extra billion euros that the banks have had to take, or yeah. plus, um, then, then they, yeah. would, they would have, you would have had to pick up that loss. What, what, what gave you the, yeah. the insight to, yeah. to do that? No, but, no, it's no insight. Mm. Uh, you know, my advisors all, there's no way that I would have assumed having regard to my balance sheet structure that kind of uh, of uh, liability mm. without protection. Now, Alec, I've had offers from all the banks on collars, zero-cost collars, different methods of financing, which would mitigate the risk. So, I mean, you know, having a margin loan ring fence is just one of the ways in which you do it. Because some of the, uh, somebody else who had invested uh, during that time, did a zero-cost collar. And, of course, for him it worked out much better than for me because I lost my shares. And obviously when you, when you go a little bit deeper into your other interests, Breit has got New Look. New Look's got massive exposures to the banks. You need a good relationship sure. with the banks. Sure. Huh? Has, this, sure. has this affected that relationship? Not at all. To me. In my own personal situation had no effect. Mm. Uh, as far as Breit is concerned, as you know, Breit had been going through a tough time, a lot of high street retailers in the UK since Brexit, uh, but we have not had any pushback. Obviously, banks do sell their debt when they you know, consider that they're at risk. Here is another interesting major banks that dealt with Steinhofer that was also in the margin line. Not a single bank sold down their exposure to Steinhoff in the two, three months in the lead-up to December. Mm. Not one. And, and, and at this stage, uh, Viceroy, were they on the, on the scene yet? I can't remember when their first report appeared. But really what Viceroy stated in their report, uh, Alec, was just, uh, in many respects, a distorted version 
of the Oldenburg prosecutor's report, which we had forensically investigated after December 2015. Marcus Just is a smart guy, cheapest, uh, that he managed to fool so many people. Have you ever well, seen this before? Yeah. No, not in my life. Um, you know, I was telling somebody this morning and I, that uh, I didn't know that, but I, I, I kind of must have been aware. But uh, my colleagues in the office pointed out to me, who are CAs, that in the year that he wrote his board exam, he was the number one guy in South Africa. Mm. Not the, no, way ahead of everybody else. He is an extremely intelligent guy. Uh, he is, you know, in my view, look, I worked very hard in my time, Alex. Uh, but the way that guy worked, I mean, was just unbelievable. You, you know, it was nothing for him to fly to Europe on Sunday, be back on Wednesday, fly to Australia on Friday, be back on Monday, fly to the United States on Thursday. I mean, it, the, the guy was just an amazing energy output. I, why do you think he did it? <laughs> well, th that has to be the $64 question. I mean, uh, uh, that baffles everybody. Why? I mean, why? For what? To achieve what? Yeah. He wasn't that big a shareholder. Well, I mean, you know, by normal standards. And he owned something, I think, like 60 million shares, which at their height, uh, where the share price was trading at 90-odd grand, I mean, that is a lot of money. But, you know, why do it to, to increase the value of, of that shareholding? Or, you know, what is the motive? But remember, Alec, we're talking all this, and we must always remember that. Until the final report is on the table, we don't know what happened. Mm. It's that simple. Mm. Yeah. My action is, is based on that it's now in the public domain said that the, the accounts were misleading. You know, assets were overinflated and profits were uh, inflated. So, but that's what, what's in the public domain, obviously. I know some things from what the auditors told me when I was uh, finally approached by them in December, but which is fiduciary knowledge and, and you know, which I'm not, you know, at liberty to disclose. But clearly that would have influenced your decision to sue Steinhoff. Well, no, uh, you know, I, I couldn't do that because, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, what, uh, uh, we call knowledge in the box. I mean, it's, uh, but there's enough out there. There are other people suing Steinhoff, Alec. You know, there are other claims on the table already, which prompted, inter alia, prompted us to take action. But, but uh, do you expect to get the money, or if there are so many claims that are there? There's I, look, no, look, Alec, I mean, to get the money, uh, I mean, how is that going to be possible? But to restructure the group, that is entirely possible. Everybody coming to the table, all the stakeholders, creditors, banks, bondholders, shareholders, claimants like myself, there are many others like me eh, who had done direct deals with the company, swapping assets into Steinhoff 
in return for shares. Now, it is clearly in the best interest of all the stakeholders to go and sit around the table and say, guys, this is the size of the cake. Here is the size of the claims. How do we restructure this company so that it can move ahead? It has some excellent businesses, and I repeat, most of those come out of Pepcorp, but there are other good businesses. There's a property portfolio, etc., etc. Let's resuscitate the thing, get it restructured, and move on. Clearly, that's got to be the logical thing to do. But if the banks have lent so much money on fictitious accounts, surely they are going to want their money back rather than to keep anything going. Well, yeah, but, you know, Alec, I mean, just think for a moment. You know, we all want our money back. But it depends on, you know, where your claim is, how it's structured, whether you're a preferred creditor, etc., etc., that that must all emerge in such a roundtable discussion. In almost five months since the Steinhoff bomb dropped, Visa has been subjected to every measure of criticism from angry and emotional stakeholders, some of which claim he was in on Eusta's crooked game. But that makes absolutely no sense, given how much money he has lost. More likely, Visa was just one of many rich, smart and powerful people who were fooled by a clever accountant from Pretoria. But even the smartest criminals tend to get snared in the end. In Joester's case, it was by his one-time bosom buddy, Andrea Seifert, a man who refused to lie down or go away quietly. This has been The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.